Okay, so in the news this week, what do you got? You got anything? Oh uh, yeah, with the uh... you don't like it. Okay, wait, <laughs> no, no, do it. We can do it again. We can do it again. No, that's fine. We'll <laughs> okay. just cut my laugh out of that. Or whatever, but... <laughs> Uh, I just heard yesterday that, I mean, there's been rumors for a while, but I guess it's official now that they are giving the Superman reboot uh, to be produced by J.J. Abrams, the green light. Oh, it's official. I didn't know it was official. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I heard about this a couple of rumblings on this. He's just producer? Uh, He's just producer at this point, and they just had a producer and a writer. Uh, assigned to it with no actors or anything like that um and yeah they we've been talking about it for a while and is henry cavell done and it's all up in the air but that's what the i mean i guess that's what the breaking news was uh well yesterday as of us recording which is friday february 26th and the only other bit of information i heard which I can't confirm if that was actually true or just some, I don't even remember where I saw it, but they were mentioning how that they're trying to go forward with the idea of having a, a black Superman. Hmm. And I've been, I've been hearing about this for a while too. So they were going to cast a black actor as Superman in this new type of story. So I don't know if that's true or not. If that were true, I think it would be sweet. And I've seen that they, that they chose uh, like Michael B. Jordan. <laughs> As Superman, <laughs> yeah, he's he's a pretty big dude, so he's he could fit it pretty pretty well. He's a good actor too. I don't know how I feel about J.J. Abrams rebooting another franchise. Like I feel like he he like set something up and it kind of it can resemble something good, but then when it gets hand off handed off, it sort of falls a little bit flat. At least the last couple of trilogies that he sort of rebooted. But I don't know. People seem to get pretty excited about you know. He, he, he gets attached to stuff but we'll see i i, I would kind of be disappointed if, with uh not using henry cavell again at least one more time as superman i feel like he's been a pretty good version but well i don't know yeah we'll see. it's just all that dc and warner brothers is just a mess and we'll talk about that in the future in a dc episode but it's where i'm like whatever this is another superman movie just another batman movie <laughs> it's just I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. I enjoy most of them. It's just, I don't know. It's not excitable to me at this time. Switching gears um, again, just it like announces to everyone that they're like, okay, we need a hard reset. Yeah. And yeah. And like justice league is about to hit the, the Snyder cut later this month. And then, so if it does turn out to be really good and we're like, yeah, we should have gotten that one. Now, now what are they going to do? Be like, all right, we've got this new Superman movie. And now we're going to give it back to Snyder because everyone loved the Snyder cut, and which I doubt that's going to be yeah, true. But yeah, dude, it's, it's not going to be good. <laughs> it's, saying, it's a weird, weird timing for an announcement like that. But. The, I think the only reason that's going to be good is because our expectations are so low. And then it's like, <laughs> yeah, this isn't bad. This movie actually yeah. wasn't too bad. <laughs> like That's how it's going to go. Yeah. Oh, great. So what do you got? You got anything new this week? Yeah, I got two things. So I thought there was some fun um, fan interaction with the uh, spider-man uh title being released where zendala and tom holland and jacob i forget the actor's last name did you see this where they like announced on twitter three different versions of the new spider-man title and so they kind of had some fun with it like, yeah i saw a headline i didn't read into it though yeah tom holland did uh he, he did a picture of the title being spider-man phone home <laughs> and then jacob did 
Spider-Man Homewrecker. And then Zendala did Spider-Man Home Slice. <laughs> and so I think they were kind of kind of teasing and having fun with like multiverse stuff. And then the, yeah. the name actually ended up being uh, No Way Home. Okay. Yeah, I knew it had something with home in it again. Right. Yeah, I think that was part of their fun. Just putting any, any, any title with a home in the name. So. Yeah. I thought it was fun. They, Marvel does a good job of, of uh, playing with the fans' expectations. So. Right, maybe that's the underlining cut to Sony as to bring Spider-Man home where it belongs. <laughs> yeah, right. It's got homecoming, far from home. Yes. <laughs> So they worked out a deal, right? So we get Spider-Man in the MCU. So that's right. cool. But maybe that maybe that's why it's called No Way Home because Sony ain't gonna <laughs> give it up. I wouldn't if I was them. The biggest property, probably. <laughs> All right, what's your other thing? Yeah, and the, the other thing. Uh, so Netflix, um, they released a, a couple of teasers, but they uh, just released a, another trailer to the series. Um, uh, Shadow and Bone, which this is based off of uh, a book series by Lee Bardo. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. But this the book series of the first book in the um, starting trilogy, the, the Grisha, series, Grisha trilogy, is uh, of the same name, Shadow and Bone. And then there's some subsequent books, uh, one of them called Six of Crows. So this is a pretty, it's a pretty popular uh, book series, which I did read Six of Crows and it was a lot of fun. The Six of Crows book is like a, a fantasy heist movie, which I, I love watching heist stuff. I, I actually think we should do a topic on heist um, media in, in the future just because it's like such a fun format. But um, this this looks pretty good. I, th I think uh, this comes out April 26th, I think. And it, it's a pretty fun fantasy series. But they're gonna do. They're gonna combine like all the books into the series. So I'm curious how how they do that because the timeline is chronological on on all those releases. But I think they're gonna have to rework some of that for for the series. But it looks pretty high production and looks like it could be fun. Right. Yeah. When I was searching for the the movie we're gonna talk about later in the review, the Shadow in the Cloud, I kept seeing the Shadow and Bones. So I looked at it a little bit. And yeah, it looks good. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I, I almost said Shadow in the Cloud because we're going to do a review <laughs> of it. And I'm like, is that? Nope, that's not the name of it. It's Shadow and Bone. So, yeah. It, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm down with Heist movie because, or Heist Topic. Uh, it's one of my favorite TV series ever on Netflix is Money Heist. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Love it. Future Topic. Look for it. Heist. Okay. I think that's it right, for, cool. for the news this week. So for the rest of the episode, we're going to talking about episode seven and eight of WandaVision. Do a recap of that. That was crazy. A review of Shadow in the Cloud. And then wrap it up with uh, movies and TV that maybe make you feel uncomfortable watching. That's not about right. Yep. It's a good description. Yep. Stuff that gets under your skin. All right. So uh, that, that's coming up on... The Socially Impaired Podcast with Devin and Andy. Okay, so left off with one division, this uh, episode seven and eight. So episode seven is uh, breaking the fourth wall, and we sort of finally 
the big reveal is uh, who's sort of been behind all of Wanda's problems in it. In this episode, the, it was revealed that Agatha is uh, Agatha Harkness, and she was sort of behind everything. Yeah, well, it was her, Agnes. Agnes is yep. Agatha Harkness, which then they talked about how her 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 name Agatha Harkness. They put it in abbreviation, so that was her character name was Agnes. And post show, <clears throat> I was reading that people like already, you know, obviously it's comic book people because I don't know who Agatha Harkness is, but that was you know, so obviously from the start, hardcore fans knew that she was a witch by just the name they chose. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, we briefly touched on some internet research a couple of weeks ago about right. it. So yeah. yeah, they were the, the clues were on it. <laughs> yes. I, I had no idea. I, I don't know this series or these characters. So Right. But she was so she was behind um having Pedro come back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in episode I guess I'll rewind a little bit here is that with the whole theme of the TV shows and we're going through decades and and certain film uh, TV show styles. This one I, I loved like right from the start and it was right late late 90s early 2000s. Modern family the office type re, you know parks and recreation kind of reality talking to the camera crew yeah talking to the off off camera kind of yeah, yeah. The, which why it was called the fourth wall thing but it was just, i don't know it was just so well done it was hilarious and her demeanor after giving vision which yeah i mean i guess she just left she saved vision in the previous episode but just left him out there and now she's like kind of wallowing in <laughs> self-pity in a way i guess you know she's lazing around wants some time to herself and everything and ends up uh agnes ends up taking the twins off her hands to have some alone time and stuff and then that all starts to unravel once monica which that was pretty funny when she tried to get into the hex right with the the space car <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's like this huge car and it just sort of runs into the wall yeah, just get out and so in that situation is when she finally powers her way through it it indicates that she has now it has changed her and she's been given powers which obviously will work into the whole captain marvel 2 situation but one thing i noticed uh getting a little ahead of myself is uh when she was going through the hacks, like her power seems to be purple. And then later on, we find out that Agatha's power is purple. So I wonder if there's a relation mm. to that because Wanda's hex is red, but somehow she, when she was going through, it was purple. And then we find out Agnes's magic is purple. So I didn't notice that. It also seemed like. Monica's like her eyes were purple now, uh, with a little bit of power and such. So, but right, that that leads into the big reveal is that Monica's back into Westview, gets to to um, Wanda, and starts to try and convince her, you know, to come out. And she's there to help, and then Agnes comes out and stops it. And then at that point is where we lead into the big reveal that. 
it was Agatha all along. <laughs> yeah, <it was> a funny <laughs> sequence, funny, funny uh, song, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the mid or uh, early two thousand like mood. <laughs> you know, it, just, it seems like typical mood of those a lot of TV shows from around there, where Wanda's kind of depressed and just wants to stay in bed all day. <laughs> and then like all of the all of her creation, or she can't seem to uh, control everything around her quite as much and like all the objects are like changing slightly and she's having a hard time you know making them fit the way she wants to and the the mid show commercial this time had to do with like a fake depression medicine Mm -hmm. right and they referred to it as the nexus which obviously reading on the internet and stuff there's you know theory of what that is but i was when i was watching age of ultron recently they, there's a Nexus referenced in Age of Ultron, but it's not. It's like a computer agency. <laughs> mm. So I didn't know. I didn't know if it was the same thing, but according to the internet theories, it's not. Oh. Did it's you read any of that? No, I didn't. Oh. Not, not the, the Nexus stuff. So I guess the Nexus is um, kind of like portals to the multiverse. Oh. And there's different areas, like, I guess the comic character man thing is a guardian of the Nexus in like Florida. I don't know. There's like guardians all over there. Yeah. It sounds oddly specific. Right. He's right because it was like a swamp. <laughs> I forget what it's called in Florida, but like the swamp area or whatever. And so that's where one is. And uh, apparently in the comics, Wanda is also a Nexus guardian and stuff like that. So I'm like, oh, I didn't really get that out of the commercial, but weird i mean to be fair here there's like years and years of uh backstory for all these characters and resets and and so who who knows what they're drawing upon and that's kind of my problem with doing internet research stuff is like yeah you're referencing stuff that existed but when you watch the mcu stuff it shouldn't be considered you know pulling from the comics exactly right i i mean they're definitely gonna make their own thing here this is another version of the characters so I think people are, you know, the fan base is going wild, so they, they just want to predict what's going to happen. So the, the enthusiasm yeah. is is in the right place, I think. But Yeah, I came across the, uh, one of the podcasts, an after-show podcast for WandaVision, and the episode is literally an hour long. I'm like, it was twice as long as an episode. <laughs> <laughs> so that's so weird. That's so weird to have a podcast talking about WandaVision. Well, yeah, I mean, it goes on twice as long as the episode you're talking about. So we're, we're going to wrap up two episodes in, you know, 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. What was uh, moving a little bit ahead into episode eight? Yeah, go and ahead. I guess that, move on. That's it. Yeah, the same idea of um, uh, going with the comic storyline, because obviously for anyone that doesn't know, the story of Wanda Maximoff is not the comic book story. And that all has to do with licensing and who owns the movie rights and all that stuff. So Wanda is actually a mutant in the comics, but in here she's an enhanced being. She was given the power by the Mind Stone um, with experiments and stuff. But in WandaVision, they're kind of going back on that a little bit and being like, well, she didn't really get her powers from the Mind Stone. Her powers have become enhanced. And they didn't know that at the time, but it seems like they're trying to say that she is a witch. So I, I mean, like a real witch. 
Yeah, they're kind of melding the two, right? Or all three of those ta- all all three of those uh, sources together. In this yeah, one. and so, so supposedly, I mean, you can still go back and be like, well, it's, she's not really a witch; she's a mutant. So we'll see how that really plays out. But currently, at this moment, the idea is that she has always had powers, and she was able to withstand the experiments to enhance those powers, and now she's a mega witch. Is that, you're talking about what happens in episode eight, yes. right? That yeah, yeah. Pre, pre, previously on is the name, and I sort of knew that she was in some type of uh, experiment when she joined the um, Freedom Fighters. I don't know, terrorist group. I'm not sure what we yeah. call them from uh, Age of Ultron, but we sort of see more of what happens behind the scenes. What you're talking about, where she gets experimented on with the uh, Infinity Stone. You know, it's a clever title for the episode because basically it's just a, it's almost like an origin story of her yeah. more so than they've even told prior to this. And so we know from the movies that her and uh, Pietro, they have a thing against Stark because their town got raided and it was used Stark weapons and they're sitting there staring at a Stark bomb that failed to go off. And also Agatha Harkness is explaining to Wanda that it wasn't luck that it didn't go off. Wanda made it not go off with her dormant powers. But and then we go through a little bit of timeline of all the, the despair she's gone through in her life. Yeah, so, so Agatha has revealed herself, and now she's trying to figure out what sorts of Wanda's powers are. So she's um, sort of walking Wanda through memories to deal with her trauma and figure out what, what, how she uh, got her powers. Right. So that's that's why we do like sort of a history. Yeah. And she yeah, she's uh, it's almost like she's not being played off really as a villain. Like, sure, she's messing around with Wanda. uh, And what I get from it is like she sensed that Wanda created Westview. And so she came and showed up like, yep, she's not one of the hostages or anything. So she showed up to figure this out. And she's like, what the hell? Like, this is a super powerful witch. I need to find this out. And it looks like curiosity is her motivator, not villainy. <laughs> She's uh, acting um, selfish, right? Like, yeah, selfish right. interest here. So, but the weird part is that she's taking Wanda through the past events, and apparently they play it off like Agnes already knows these things. So, what, I don't know what the end goal is, but because she, she's like narrating the flashbacks, right? Yeah, a little loose <laughs> with her uh, motivation, right? Like, yeah, it's. <laughs> Yeah. Although in the end, she does say that you're too powerful and like kind of like that she can't let her, she can't let her be here because she's too powerful. But, um, another, this episode made it dawn on me because there's obviously a connection with all of the little commercial breaks in between each episode. And it made me realize that all the commercials are taking you through that same timeline. And in episode one, I started to go back and look. I didn't go through all of them, but episode one was a, a commercial for a toaster. And like at the end of the to- the toaster is like beeping red and it's just beeping over and over again. And it turns out now looking back on it, it's in reference to the Tony Stark bomb that didn't go off. And then like episode two has to do with the experiments with Hydra or the commercial two and it just goes on. So they all kind of connect together. It's pretty interesting. Hmm. I didn't. I didn't catch all that. That's pretty good. Yeah. Right. I didn't catch it while I was watching it. I mean, I knew there was something up with the commercials, but 
after this show, I went back and I'm like, yep, this is all linking to those devastating parts of her life that caused her or brought us to this position. Hmm. Oh. I, I thought this episode, uh, episode eight was a, a little clunky just in what you're sort of alluding to with um, Agatha, Agatha's uh, motivation and then sort of like the, um, this is already, always sort of the battle for me and these Marvel stuff in like the Star Wars um, show Mandalorian is that a lot of the um, reliance of the story or the plot is what the audience previously already knows. And so like some of this stuff, like like the big reveal at the end where they're like, you know, oh, you're this is uh, chaos magic and you're a, you're the Scarlet Witch. And it's like, oh, OK, yeah, I guess. I mean, we already knew she was Scarlet Witch, right? <laughs> like it's kind of like rehashing this stuff, which I couldn't remember if they had actually ever called her Scarlet Witch. They haven't. Okay, nope. so so like this is the first time they they call her that. So, but it still, it's just like, okay. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of weird. <laughs> but, and that's kind of the humor in the way we do talk about these two in particular is that they've never been deemed Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. They've always just been Wanda and Pietro Maximoff in the MCU. But we know who they are, so we always yeah. call them by their proper names. So technically, this was a big episode for that reveal of who she is as the Scarlet Witch. Um, and obviously, the, the episode eight starts off in the distant past of Salem with the witch-type trials, I guess. But And from the looks of it, most of the witches have a certain color magic, so that probably, you know, obviously Wanda's is red, uh, Agatha's is purple, the main witches was blue, and it was... Stuff like that. So she's referring to her as the Red Witch, basically. Yeah, yeah that was that sequence was um, and it was a little bit funny to me because like she gets caught by the other witches and then there's like, I don't know, like eight of them or something shooting their beams at her. And then she like reverses them and like sucks the life out of them. And then like the uh, the main witch or the more powerful witch then like uses the same power on her after witnessing Agatha take out the other ones. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, like she's going to get you. And of course she does, but she man, must've just thought she's more powerful. Yeah. But. Yeah. Stubbornness got her. And that's a good scene too, to um, represent Agatha's actual personality uh, is because she didn't want to hurt those witches. She was like asking for them to help her. And I guess she broke, it said that she broke the witch code because she was looking into dark magic and, and they're saying that she's a dark witch and yeah, she's like, you can help again. me and all that. Yeah. Right. And she, the whole time, even as she's killing them, she's asking to help for help and they still do, you know, they still do it and she ends up killing them all. She did it in self-defense in a way. Even though I thought this episode was a little bit clunky, I think it has one of, um, probably the best moments in the series so far, but when uh, Wanda and Vision have, I think it's their only scene together in this episode, but uh, you know, throughout the course of the episode, it sort of revealed when Wanda was younger, she, one of like her uh, final moments with her parents was sitting down and watching these old TV shows. So, you know, she sort of lived through the TV shows and while she was uh, grieving or not, yeah, she was grieving um, her brother's death in the Avengers compound. 
you know, she was watching, uh, I think it was Malcolm in the Middle, and Vision comes, you know, and sits next to her and is watching it. And so they're watching the show, and like, so, so I think like the house or like something falls on one of the characters in Malcolm in the Middle, and a Vision says this pretty hilarious. I thought it was a like a hilarious comment in that it was like really dry. And he he, he says, "Is it funny because of the grievous injury the man just suffered?" And, it's, <laughs> and this whole sequence I thought was really good because it kind of sums up the Marvel universe of why we like it. Because like you know that scene is funny, and then um, you know Wanda's. Uh, suffering or grieving and then he makes the comment and sort of defines what she's going through um saying uh, what is grief but love uh persevering and I, I thought that was a pretty touching moment uh, between the two and you I, I think um it made me realize in this film that the two stars of it you know really make this series uh what it is and i mean it's i mean it's oh, called yeah. it's, it's it's called wandavision and they're the two main stars but you know they were off screen um they weren't you know on screen together for most of this episode and then when they were i was like oh yeah okay this is what i like about this show these two pretty good actors i'm glad they added that in too as a little more context into the relationship because that's one yeah. thing that I, I i joked about before the show even came is like wait why are they even t- i don't even understand why they're together they're like two side characters of the movies and yeah i mean i knew they explained it real quick but it's like you want more in depth you're gonna watch this whole show so i'm glad they gave a little more weight to that relationship throughout this series specifically that scene because that's more in the past yeah and my my sidebar co- comment here about the mcu in general and this scene it made me think about the whole um mcu together with this these two lines that vision says is because he doesn't understand why that why that show is funny because people are getting hurt but when you think about like these Marvel superheroes, we're just watching these, you know, big dumb characters fight all the time. And it's like, how many times do you need to see this? <laughs> well, we need to see it because, you know, we're really starting to be attached to these characters who we see grieve, who we see love each other, work as a team together. And that's what we're really there for. Not necessarily the action sequences that are can be played off as like a dumb joke. But it, so it, it, I thought it was pretty good. Pretty good scene. Yeah, that's good representation of mcu as a whole and saying that like especially yeah. compared to like dc so <laughs> yeah. i think that's what's lacking in dc is the emotional connection to many of them yeah we also learn that sword lied to monica and all them because they said that she stole vision's body yeah and that was not true they still had vision's body so like we were talking before like you were at, you were saying that maybe she's animating this corpse or whatever, which is obviously not true now that Sword had said that. But when she created the hex, it shows kind of like that the Mind Stone created that this. I don't know how to what to call it magic version of Vision where he was all yellow, right? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was confused about this. I didn't understand if she had created him using the Mind Stone or. This was an illusion still. I, I still wasn't clear on that. Yeah, see, the, the way I put it is, is, again, because Scarlet's magic is red. And so he came out of her in a yellow form, which is the Mind Stone color. And it created this, all of the, you know, not nerves, but how they explained it in Infinity War. Like, he's got all these neurons, like all this weird stuff. And so it looked like it built him back from the Mind Stone but in more of a magic spirit type form. And then Wanda had put the visual on top of him. 
And so now in this post credit scene, we find out the sword lied, sword put Vision back together. And Vision is a lifeless, uh, all gray, white being again, like he originally was. And they used that drone from a previous episode that has her power on it because she attacked it, which that doesn't make sense, but brings Vision back to life. So it's, but it's just Vision's body. And so it's this plain, empty, android, white body. So I think that at the end, Vision is going to come back by merging the new Mindstone version that is his actual personality with the body that Sword rebuilt. So I think in the end, they're going to merge together and he'll be back. Yeah, I thought this was like, this was like a nothing <laughs> reveal at the end. Like to me, like Vision's already backed by some powers that I, I can't explain and, and they don't have to explain to me like because there's magic in this. So it's like he's back in the show and then he's back in this white version and then, you know, all this, uh, you know, we're going to bring Vision back in another way. And it's like, I, I don't really care about that. Like like the reveal <laughs> of him just being white and showing up, I'm like, why is he white? I got, okay, I guess we'll find out next episode. But the the constant like, uh, um, you know, reveal stuff is is just, it's just not that interesting to me after a couple of times over and over. So I don't know. This was like, uh, hey, Vision's white and okay, why is he white? That, that's what I was saying <laughs> to myself. I wasn't thinking about any, really anything else because I already, he's already been back to me. So it, 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 I don't know. It's kind of weird. He's white because it's not Vision. It's missing Vision. <laughs> yeah. And Sword, you know, Sword keeps referring to him as a super weapon. So obviously they're trying to use him as a weapon. Yeah, the so, most, most powerful sentient being yeah. or whatever. So they just brought him back. They're going to send him in there to fight. And what's going to happen is Mindstone Vision, Scarlet Witch, and Agatha Harkness are probably going to fight White Vision. And then they're going to, you know, merge normal Vision into him. So that's my thought. Next week we'll know. <laughs> yep. But clearly Sword and White Vision are the true threat at the end reveal is what I think. Yeah, they baited her. Okay, I think that's it for One Vision. All right, our second topic is uh, the movie Shadow in the Cloud, which this movie came out like January 1st of this year, and I missed it because when I saw the trailer, I was like, this movie looks fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but for some reason, I watched it this past week, and this is, uh, um, this stars Chloe Grace Lorenz. I don't know how to say her last name, but she, she was like hit girl in uh, Kick-Ass, and now she's been in a lot of other stuff. But I thought this movie was surprisingly good, maybe because my expectations were really low. But for we talk about this all the time about like rating a movie based on its genre. And for what genre this is, I think I don't know if you can do this type of movie um, any better. Like it, it was it was really fun. Like like uh, uh, Chloe plays a the, the premise of the movie is well, know, wait, what, what genre is this? Um, World War II horror. Yeah, so what I would consider this is like a B type movie, like a B action type movie is is the action. So, um, yeah, that that that's how I was thinking of it. But the the premise is a a female uh, World War II pilot sort of uh, smuggles or gets not smuggles. She sort of works her way onto a a B seventeen 
uh, bomber and there's a sort of <laughs> i don't know unknown threat on on the on the bomber and she's not supposed to be there and the crew is sort of uh she kind of they kind of harass her for being there and they're questioning why she is there and then i don't know sort of chaos sort of erupts from from that but I, it's a it's, it's it sounds stupid but the setup i think is is kind of is kind of clever to start what's uh, your thoughts on the movie uh yeah it, the movie was well filmed and handled i guess but wasn't wasn't a big fan of it i don't interesting i mean it was all summed up in that twilight zone episode or the twilight zone movie in like 10 minutes like half of this movie has to do with a horror bit with the monster and then the other part has to do i don't know yeah, so so they they uh like the the movie starts with uh, this like cartoon about uh, gremlins like causing havoc on uh, bombers. You know they they like cause mischief on bombers. So the, there's like this like urban legend for uh, pilots and airmen that uh, when something goes wrong on a bomber, oh well, it must be gremlins. But in the in the movie's case, there's actually a gremlin on board. So um in it's uh, it, it looks like sort of like a like a large bat, I would say. But um, so there's definitely this uh, B level horror element to it, I, and it's uh, um, it's I think it's a lot of fun, and I, I was surprised at uh, the setup because when you know the when she gets onto the plane, they sort of you know don't want her there, and they so they so they stuff her in the lower um, gun compartment. And she's locked in there and it, it, it's got to be like, I don't know, it's, I felt like 15, 20 minutes where she's just in there and she's talking to the rest of the crew in a headset. And I kept thinking to myself, man, this would, this would make like an excellent format for a podcast, like, you know, because it's all, all, all through their voice, you know, and I was like, is this how the whole movie's going to be? Is just this one isolated perspective? But it, it's not. She eventually gets out. And, but I mean, the whole movie takes place on the plane, but it's still. Um, I don't know. I thought it was pretty clever. Like that, yeah, that, like, that was the like, highlight. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. That was the highlight for me too. And that's what I give credit to is that, that, and it was way longer than 20 minutes. It was like half the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, and I'm like, wow, like it's just one actor sitting in this bubble and it's either CG or people on the headset. And so that was really good. Yeah. That's the best part of the movie in my, in my mind. It's the way it was done. I really like this because this made me think of like uh, like a black exploitation movie of the seventies with Pam Greer, where you know it's like this sort of almost uh, like women woman empowerment thing. And I thought this was a clever injection in this type of movie because it's a B movie, horror elements, action, and a, and a female star. And so when uh, I figure with that, the act, the actress is is uh, Chloe Morenz, Mer- Mer- but I, I forget which what her um, character's name is. Garrett. Jeep gets what? What is it? Garrett. Garrett. So when Garrett is gets first gets on the plane and gets stuffed in that stuffed in that compartment, the um, the pilots are like really harassing her, and at, at one point they think that they've cut her off from listening, or she hasn't put on a headset yet, and they're like, you know, they're they're pretty like, you know, they're talking about like how like attractive she is, and you know, they want to get with her, and you know, so it's this like barrage of. Um, uh, male attacks you know on her and there's this theme throughout the whole movie where uh 
you know, about that and, and what that means in an action movie. And I, I just thought it was really clever to inject in a movie like this. And I thought it was, it was, it was hand, handled really well. Yeah, and based on the time frame, because it is World War II, you just have to imagine they, they portray that a lot in some movies uh, from the other perspectives that all these guys go to war and they're just around guys. So as soon as they see a girl, they're all cat calling and saying nasty stuff. And so they definitely played that out here. And some of, some of them were saying that, like, you know, in a sexual manner. And the other ones are like, get off of here. Like, you're a jinx. <laughs> like, yep. And yeah yeah so the whole thing is you know it's it's kind of got that like ripley in alien feel to it where she she, she's Mm -hmm. they're like she shouldn't be here she shouldn't do this but she ends up you know solving all their problems and saving the day there's a there's a pretty uh great sequence at the end where like you know like i think there's like the you know saying of like uh you know hold my beer like you know i could imagine a guy saying that but instead um, you, you have to see the movie to understand what this scene is. But instead of hold my beer, she's like, hold my baby. Let me go kill this uh, uh, gremlin. And it's, it's just a great ending to the movie. It's kind of spoils it. But, you know, this is a spoiler cast, though. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's nowhere near the proper level of Ripley. But I mean, I know you don't think that, but it's very forced in this movie. A lot of that stuff, it it didn't naturally come off like it does in Alien or many other movies. So I had a problem with that in general. Well, I didn't think so. I th- I thought yeah. this was spot on through the whole thing. Like, I, I think as a B movie goes, you're going to get some like cheese ball moments. And it's great to see a female actor um, take that and, and, and run with it. And uh, especially against a, a cast that's largely male. And it's, it's a, um, a female um, director too, and I was reading about her a little bit. Her name uh, is Roseanne Liang, and she's like a really big um, action junkie. And she like had spent like a lot of her youth and you know, I don't I don't know what you want to call it, like training or whatever you want for making movies. But she would take you know these big action sequences in like T two or Aliens, and you know all the big action sequences that you can think of, and she'd just like break them down you know, second by second, you know, to, to figure out what makes a great action, action sequence. And there's a couple um, a good ones in this one, especially under the confines of a movie that takes place in and around a B-17 bomber. Like, how much can you do? I mean, you, you right. can do quite a bit. And I imagine the budget for this movie is not that big, but it feels like it is. And I, I, I thought it was pretty well executed. Yeah, I mean, she's confined to just this small compartment first the small gunner seat and then even then just the small plane compartment so it's very she's limited did did very well with that though yeah yeah i i'm i'm surprised like a movie like this gets made sometimes because you know you you get like a good uh fresh voice with the director and then you get um a, a relatively known star to star in it like i don't know how you convince someone to be like hey you you want to come into this world war ii uh, movie that has gremlins it's like yeah sure i want to definitely do that like it's hard to it, it was, it's hard to me imagine someone seeing the vision behind it but i'm assuming you know that the trust with a, a really talented director can get you know other talented people into it and i i hope that this um director gets other stuff and and bigger budgets because I, I i was pretty impressed by this outing so it's 
to, yeah. to me, I was surprised. Sorry, I, I was surprised, but I like to me, like this is the best movie I've seen this year. And I was just like, <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? This this B movie, this B action movie is the best thing I've seen. Like, I, I mean, it's pretty early in the year still, but I was I was really into it. Yeah, Chloe is she's into independent stuff. She does lots of stuff with voice work, independent films, lower uh, B movies, and stuff like that. So it makes sense that she was on board with it. Did you see who wrote it? Did you look into who wrote it? Was um, Max Landis. And um, well, Max Landis and the director wrote, co wrote it together, but Max Landis wrote Chronicle. Oh, yeah. Okay. So- Yep, yeah, so, yeah I, I guess I did know that it was the writer of Chronicle because I guess there was some controversy around this guy and they um, did he end up getting like fired from this movie. Oh, um, yeah. And, yeah. and but, I mean, he already had a, he did a lot of the writing. So, of course, he, you know, by Writer's Guild, he gets credit for the movie as he should because he wrote it. But there is. Uh, Maybe that's why it was co-written with the director. She probably just took over. She afterwards. took over, right? And I think there, I think that's why there's a lot of the um, female intolerance stuff in the movie because of the controversy around Max Landis. Yeah, he did a bright uh, Mr. Right American Ultra and then some show called Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. <laughs> hmm. So anyways, writing credits, that's pretty big for this type of movie. I, I thought that. Chronicle was probably the best of those superhero found footage ones. There's only a couple, but I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, in the end, I'd just give it like a two star. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely mm-hmm. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah this, for for a genre movie, I have a hard time um, just throwing out fours. But I don't know how you do this any better or any worse. Like, there's nothing in this movie that I don't think shouldn't be in it, and it's fun. It's a fun ride the whole time. It's well acted, well shot, well produ- the production looks bigger than I'm sure what it is. I don't know what it is, but it it, it was really well executed I, I don't know i can't see having any more fun at the theater like this is this movie is just really fun to me so i thought i thought it was pretty good pretty good movie that's why because you keep calling it a b movie but it had like great production value so i don't know why you're considering it a b movie uh it's it just the theme of it right the uh a world war ii uh horror movie that's it, usually like the subject of like these b movies like the premises are are a little bit like out there a little bit sci-fi-ish or horror, horror-ish. That's usually what a B movie is, and they usually do have lower budgets. Like I'm betting this budget is not that big, but it looks big. That's that's one of the, oh, one of the things to um, highlight there. I think is yeah, the, even the CGI Gremlin looked very, it was pretty flawless for the most good. part. So mm-hmm. yep. So you gave it a four star. I think so. It's it's hovering mm-hmm. for me between three, three and a half, four. But uh, I mean, I I could I could see myself giving this a four. So yeah, right on. Okay, so I think that's that's good for the um, Shadow in the Clouds review, and so we're on to our I guess I guess main topic, but movies that get under your skin. And I thought this was pretty fun to research and to sort of go back and uh, think about and rewatch some of the scenes or some of the movies that have this. But um, I guess first, what do you think of when? you think of a movie that sort of gets under your skin or is uncomfortable to watch? Like what kind of, what kind of movies are in the scope here for you? Yeah. And to start off, I'll just say that we're, we'll definitely revisit this topic in the future because there are so many out there, but it's been so long that I watched them. I don't totally remember. So I'll keep a running list going forward. 
And while I was searching, I was searching on the internet to kind of jog my memory of some of those movies I did. Yep. It it really comes comes to my attention that most movies that people think are uncomfortable have to do with gore and horror in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh more gross horror and stuff like that. Uh and that is not what I consider <laughs> in my movies of being uncomfortable. Cause I'm a I'm a horror nut, so I'm I don't know, whatever, desensitized to a lot of that stuff. So that doesn't make me uncomfortable, most of it. But I, I guess the one that really made me think of this in the first place was in the movie Black Bear, the like couples arguing or like a relationship fight. If it's done so well on screen, like I feel like I'm another participant sitting (laughs) at the table with them and I'm like, I want to leave. Like, I need to go. Um, You guys can finish this without me. (laughs) That kind of situation is one one of the aspects that makes me uncomfortable in movies. When I think of this, it comes down to like two versions of it, two two different um, categories. And the first one, I think, was more in line with what you were alluding at where most people think of of like a horror uncomfortable but not not so much just in a horror movie but it's like the um kind of like hard i consider it like hard to watch in in that it's um probably some sort of like physical abuse or like like torture or something like that happening and which is does have like you know zombies head exploding is is kind of gross although it's not that i wouldn't say that's necessarily difficult to watch i mean it is because there's a head a brain exploding but the context you know that going into a zombie movie that there's going to be guts and uh brains right but so that's almost part of the fun for a horror movie but like hard to watch is like you know like uh more like torturing humans you know and uh that type of thing and Needle then the, in the uh, eyeball yeah exactly and then the other side is like the uncomfortable awkward or um like state like just someone like getting embarrassed or saying something embarrassing or you know just an awkward interaction between two people like those those ones like you know they they just make me squirm in my seat so i i have examples of both of them and i'm sure you have examples of these too yeah that i guess that's uh one of the modern ways to refer to some of this uh is cringe it's a cringy thing and yeah. that's what like the cringe my, comedy right yeah I my kids will say that like you said that about awkwardness like one of the kids when we watch stuff he he is not into like awkward conversations <laughs> and or anxiety driven situations and he always thinks it's cringeworthy <laughs> uh yeah i mean like i said like it was see someone's putting a needle in an eyeball yeah i'll be like uh you know that that is cringy and uncomfortable to watch uh torture stuff so yeah those two things i think that would be it i want to get like the most horrible viewing experience i can think of out of the way first because i i almost didn't i didn't even want to talk about it but the the hard to watch side for me what my my uh my initial or my first example is the movie irreversible and i I don't know if you've ever seen this movie it came out early 2000s have you seen this no yeah okay so there's this couple and they go out on like to a a a rave or something i don't know they're they're just going out and they get they have like a mild fight and so they get separated and and the woman leaves early and the the star is monica belushi and she's it's in 
it takes place in Europe. And so there's like this, uh, there's these underground tunnels that go underneath like a, a busy highway or something. But um, so like the stairs go down and then there's the long like alleyway or tunnel and then stairs go back up. And in here, she gets attacked and she gets raped. And it's like, I, it feels like a 30 minute scene. I don't know if it's that long, but it, I mean, it is long. And just how brutal it is, is so difficult to watch that like like i i i could i I don't think i've ever seen the movie twice and i can i mean the movie's like 20 years old and i still like just talking about it makes me uncomfortable because i mean while it's happening there's like this shot where she's sort of she's like um face down in the ground but her her face is like sort of towards the camera and she at one point she's sort of reaching out and it's like she's reaching out to the audience and uh it's it's just it's absolutely brutal to watch. Like it, it, it's, it's super hard to watch. Right. And that's a hard type of scene too, where it's like, uh, in appreciation of film, like, I, I don't know how to be. I'm like, I, I respect scenes like that for showing like reality. Cause I mean, not all of them are like that and can really touch you in that way. So I appreciate it for that purpose, but you're right. It's like, they're so hard to watch, which two of the ones on my list are very similar, which I would separate that almost into a third category, uh, not necessarily in the torture type form, but the idea of just violence or gratuitous yeah. violence or, you know, rape. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's pretty rough. Cause the last house on the left, uh, both of these I'm referring to are the remake versions, but obviously the originals do the same thing. Uh, Last House on the Left is by Wes Craven, and I Spit on Your Grave, uh, the original, well, the first one, remake, (laughs) there's a bunch of them, sequels (laughs) and remakes and all that, Uh, but that one in particular, the rest of them are just capitalizing on that idea, but the first one is the one that was meaningful. And it is, it's one of those, I've seen it several times. And like you just said, like I've never watched Irreversible multiple times because that scene is so hard. And when I watch, I spin on your grave, I watch it because throughout the entire movie, it's such a great movie. But in that particular time frame where the violence is happening, it is just so like, I, you almost feel like guilty watching it or something like, yeah, I don't know. But again, going back to our previous movie review, we were just talking about and the idea of the centralized character and empowerment, like I Spin on Your Grave is a, a super empowering movie in a way after the fact. Obviously, they that's the idea is, which if you don't know, I guess to set it up is that it's a woman goes out on a vacation by herself to a cabin, you know, in the woods. She's a writer. She wants to just chill and drink wine and write. And of course, she comes across some backwoods dudes that are all inappropriate and perverted and everything. And they end up coming and taking over her cabin and stuff like that. But ultimately in the end, you know, she gets through it and basically kills them all. So that's redeeming. Uh, This is a whole genre, right? Like the revenge genre. Yep. Yep. Any movies like that. Last house on your left. Uh, I think I Spin on Your Grave is a very well done, meaningful movie. Last House on the Left is also a good movie, but it's more just cringe the whole movie and not really like a good point necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> De- definitely hard to watch. And specifically, Last House on Your Left uh, had to take or had to do with a daughter. Like that hurts a lot 
more to an extent, uh, which in one of my other movies I'll get to later, like the idea of seeing like kids or anything like that yeah. hurt as well. <laughs> right. So on The Last House on Your Left, I mean, and I spent in your grave, it was a grown woman, which is terrible. But in Last House You Left, it was like a teenage girl. And like, there's this one part where what makes it terrible is like the, the people that attacked her and left her for dead end up going and at the parents' house. You ever seen this movie? Um, I'm trying to remember, like there's a couple, there's like the, like the seventies version and there's the remade version. So I'm having trouble aligning these. Right. This is the remade one, but either way that the villains end up at the parents house of the girl they left for dead because like the car broke down or something. And so they're like, the parents are being all nice to the strangers and all that shit. And <laughs> oh, they just God. did all this stuff to the girl and the girl's like crawling half dead to the back of the house and all this. So, I mean, the end of when they get the revenge and stuff, but it's like, how oh, fucking terrible would that be? <laughs> yeah. For both any of the people, you know, her involved, but or as well. Yeah. The, the tough to watch category, or the, the one, the ones we're new, uh, zeroing in on at the moment are, uh, you know, it's usually like a pretty good movie, like you were saying, but it, it, it doesn't, and it doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't really make me want to rewatch any of them. <laughs> so I'm, I'm also thinking of another one, uh, the movie 12 Years a Slave. I don't know if you saw that movie. Oh, yeah. But you, you did see it? I, I think I've seen the part that you're talking about, but yeah, I haven't like, watched the whole thing through. Right. Yeah, it's based on a true story of um, a guy that uh, um, he's a free he's a, a free black man in, in the eight, late 1800s, but then he gets captured and enslaved for um, 12 years, right? And um, so during that time he, uh one of the other slaves who he becomes friends with uh I, I forget the scenario but they get in sort of in trouble i think he actually leaves the camp and then gets re uh um captured and so as his punishment the slave owner ends up having him uh whip uh his friend and again it's another scene that seems like it's you know 45 minutes long which i'm, I'm assuming it's under 10 but it, it's like I think it's like one take or it's made to look like one long take and you know it just goes on and on it feels like and it's just you know him whipping this woman and I think he's sort of resisting and then this you know the slave owner uh threatens him you know and like points a gun at him so then he starts whipping her harder and then he stops and then the slave owner takes over and so I mean she gets whipped so many times that it's it's so rough. it's it's really rough scene to watch you, you see most of that and she sells that and and that's a good. That's a new category. Just a brought it up. This new category. <laughs> it's not a part of torture. It's the category of injustice. Yeah, because that makes me think of uh, the movie Detroit. Did you see that? I didn't see this. I, I... Oh man, yeah. Like just throughout the whole movie, you're just like, "Fuck you, people!" <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yep. you get so angry about what's going on and stuff. So I'd highly recommend checking that one out. Yeah, it was pretty oh, good. Basically, just police brutality mm-hmm. in the seventies or around 60s. or eighties. I'm sorry, I think it was it oh, was, was it? during the Detroit riots. Oh, when was oh, that? right. Yep, that makes sense. Oh, I think that's the sixties. Yeah, hmm. I have to watch the movie get the mm-hmm. context. Okay, so um, okay, okay. I promise this is the last like 
um, horrible, <laughs> horrible one. But this also this came out in 2000. Uh, I'm pretty sure you've seen this, but the a movie Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, that was that yeah. was on the list of most of the ones I was looking up on the Internet. Yeah. Is- yeah. This th- I mean, this this one stays with me, too, because uh, Jennifer Connelly plays um, a heroin addict and to get money to pay for heroin. She goes to uh, this rich guy, I guess, for a favor. And in exchange for the favor, she she's, um, she knows that she's going into it, that she's going to have to perform some type of sexual act. But she didn't realize that it was going to be like as uh, grotesque as, as it is. And if, I mean, if, you, if you've seen the movie, it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty tough scene to watch. It's, you know, it's just another, another of these movies where you, know, you, it's, you have a hard time looking at the screen the whole time. And it's pretty steep. <laughs> Yeah, and with uh, don't revisit that one often. <laughs> I think I haven't <laughs> since it came out. I was like, nope, <laughs> seen it. That's pretty awful. We are speaking of heroin. That's wow. That's really the only other one I have on my list because again, I couldn't think of a bunch. Yeah, but uh, was train spotting, and excuse me, heroin. It's all about heroin and stuff like that. But specifically, the scene with the like the baby and the oh, baby yeah. well yep. the baby dies in the movie because of their <laughs> neglect uh yep. through drug use and stuff but the whole the I, you know the dream sequence or whatever and the baby is climbing on the ceiling like dead baby climbing on the ceiling right yeah like, it's, it's lots rough yeah i mean it's uncomfortable in the state of just knowing that that's how a lot of stuff is out there where you know kids do die all the time from neglect because someone's hopped up on the floor everything like that so yeah that was when it went because that's that's quite a while ago. i was like a teenager when that came out i'm pretty sure uh, i think it's 99 or 98 yeah. somewhere in there yeah. this next one i feel like i gotta set it up just a slight slightly i know you've seen this movie i know everyone's seen this movie but so this i think it came out around 1994 somewhere in there but so i had to sneak in to get to this movie and the movie's pulp fiction yeah and the trailer for this, if you remember, is like, you know, hyper stylized, you know, movie that looks like super cool, right? Like this is Quentin Tarantino's uh, second movie. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of hype behind it. And it's like, oh, yeah. So this movie I probably saw a little too young. Like, I think some of these that are hard to um, watch uh, hit at an age for us uh, that mm-hmm. was, you know, our minds are still sort of developing and it's probably being exposed to some of this stuff for the first time. So it makes it even that much harder. But for this movie, you know, you're going in and you're going to see something cool, right? So the scene that I'm talking about that I found hard to watch because it was like, he was just like, what the fuck? Was when, uh, you know, it's it's the bring out the gimp scene. You know, Marcellus Wallace gets sodomized by these two crazies. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I don't know last time you watched this, but, you know, this scene is, you know, Tarantino is absolutely a master at building tension. And this is what really gets under my skin, right? Because there's like the shot of uh, Marcellus Wallace and uh, uh, Butch, that's uh, Bruce Willis character. You know, there's two, they're sitting in chairs and they sort of wake up from after being attacked and they have, you know, like these apparatuses on their faces. So they, you know, their mouths are open and these balls are in their mouths. And so you're you, like right off the bat, they're, they're chained up and you're like, what the fuck is going on here? And then in the background, you know, the guy said, or Zed says, you know, bring out the gimp. And then, he, you know, he gets this guy out of like a kennel or something in the background. 
And it's just like the whole scene just keeps like building of like, what the hell is going on? And it's exactly what you think is going to happen, right? And, and, yeah. and it's a long sequence because then uh, Zed does like a any any mini mini mo pick, you know, to mm-hmm. see who's going to go first. And it's Marcellus goes first and then the door shuts and, you know, it's, you know, he gets raped and it's just like, oh my God, this is fucking crazy. But this is like one of the movies where it's like a revenge scene from what you were talking about with I Spit on Your Grave. And that these two characters, Marcellus and Butch, are at odds at this point and want to kill each other. But then because of, they have go through this event together, they sort of are like, we're never going to fucking talk about this again. And we're going to go our <laughs> right. separate ways. Right. You know, and it's just this like roller coaster of up and down of tension and relief and like, you know, fuck, yeah, they got out of there, you know, kind of thing. And it, it, it's amazing to watch, but the tension is difficult to go through. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't experience the same thing with that scene, but <laughs> what do you mean? I, I don't know. So? I mean, yeah, it wasn't un- necessarily uncomfortable. I was like, oh, you know, like, yeah, I agree with what you're saying with all the tension and all that kind of stuff. But the the thing in Pulp Fiction or the scene that would top it in that particular movie would be the when they're reviving <laughs> Mrs. Marcellus in the drug house with the needle. Mia Wallace. Mia Wallace. That's, it. Yeah. <laughs> no, this, that's how she's like that's right. her name in that date scene. And that might go back to my original thing of how like arguing and stuff it makes me uncomfortable. And in that scene, it was so everyone was chaotic and yelling at each other. So I think that just took me into a higher <laughs> level. But yeah, with the Bruce Willis scene, that was the gimp. It's just yeah. forever be in everyone's heads. Yep. <laughs> well, well, I have go one ahead, real quick, ahead, which I, th- ahead, I think is ahead. on your list too, because we have talked about this before, but I actually forgot about it until right now. <laughs> okay. And again, it goes into the whole, for me, it does. I think you had a different perspective on this, but uh, the whole arguing and noisiness and stuff like that that affects me was with um, Uncut Gems oh. with Adam Sandler. And when I watched this movie, it was like, I think I even, I remember texting you at the time or something. I don't know, but I'm like, dude, I, like, I'm going to turn this movie off. Like there's <laughs> so much talking over top of each other and all this going on the whole time. And it's just, it just made me feel like I was in the middle of a huge crowd. <laughs> uh, so I, I did not enjoy that mo- well movie for that fact. It was still a pretty good movie, but. The whole fucking movie is just an absolute pressure cooker for what yeah. we're talking about. Like what, like, yeah, people talking over each other. That guy's um, I disregard for, I, I don't know, gambling. Like he he takes like <laughs> huge bets, saves himself, and then immediately turns around and tries to one up himself. And it's just like the anxiety of, of watching that movie by the end of it was so high. Like, like you, I, the same, I, I felt like the same thing of like, Oh my God, I need to turn this fucking movie off at the end of it. Like I had to take a week's vacation, you know, like from everything. <laughs> it was just like, my, my anxiety was so high. Like, I don't know how that guy didn't have a heart attack. Right. <laughs> like it was just like, Oh, right. yeah. It makes me think like, I mean, that's a stereotype stereotypical, uh, portrayal of that but like like i like i couldn't live in brooklyn or new jersey because of the way they all talk or like italy <laughs> i couldn't be italian <laughs> so everyone talks over each other and is yelling all the time i can't handle that oh all right that's that's mostly what i got unless i think of stuff while you're finishing up 
I, that's uh, that's one half of my list. The the other, the other half is the uh, so those are the hard to watch like physical abuse or you know that kind of stuff. The other ones are what I call this is probably falls into more of the cringe comedy area, um, but loosely loosely. But you know the uncomfortable awkward uh, scenes, and I, I you know I think these are both uh, hard to watch but also really endearing because, you know, I think there's like artists that have made, you know, a whole aesthetic about, you know, being, you know, awkward, like Wes Anderson, his entire movies are just awkward people, you know, in awkward setups getting together, which that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. Like that's, that's like a fun um, awkwardness, I think. Yeah. But then, and to some degree, I think it can be, um, you know, like an awkward scene, but a fun movie. And it's not necessarily like hard to watch, but it definitely gets under my skin. So uh, one of my, one example, yeah, one example for this is the movie, I love you, man. And the premise, yeah, yeah, I do too. And I think it's perfect because um, the whole premise is that uh, Paul Rudd doesn't really have any friends. And so he, he's like really attentive to his girlfriend, which I, if I remember, it's Rashida Jones, right? Is this that yes. one? Yeah. Yep. Okay, Rashida Jones. And so he's like off in the kitchen in this scene making like these really fancy like coffee drinks for his, um, you know, I think it's his, I think his girlfriend or fiance. I, I can't remember. Yes, fiance. Fiance, right. Okay. And like they're, they're having like a, a girl's night. And so he, he, you know, wants to make these special drinks for them. And so he overhears them talking about him about how he doesn't have any friends and he's like oh fuck i don't want them to hear me or know that i'm here because he's like about to come into the room and sort of backs off and and so it's just like this really cringe moment it's like don't see him don't see him i can't (laughs) believe he overheard that but i I think that ends up hearing them but then at the end of the scene he's like oh man i gotta get some fucking friends and that like is the setup for the entire movie but so it's like um it's just the pain of having to go through that sequence and is is the like you know main driving force behind that movie which i which i think it makes it work but it's really hard to sit through scenes like that for me that it's like the socially awkward moment where you you sort of like shrink up you know it's like oh oh yeah a lot of comedy movies are just based on that uncomfortableness like you know meet the parents like of course meeting anyone's parents so it's just non-stop in that movie just <laughs> uncomfortableness and everything that goes wrong you know another which i also know if you you've seen because we watched it together but the in the movie swingers this is uh, this is brutal is that the don favreau's character <laughs> when he's gets, on the phone all the time right? yeah exactly yeah. so he gets a number from some girl and he's having a hard time going through a breakup so he, he you know he he's really um grasping at at holding on to making this work so it's um it, it the movie's like early 90s or something so you know he's got a call he's trying to call this girl back and then gets the answering machine so he wants to leave a message about who it is and you know he's really nervous and it's the answering machine so you get one shot right so he, he tries and he completely fucks it up and then he ends up calling her like four or five times and each time you're like what are you doing <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and then at the end of it i think the girl like picks up and she's like yeah don't ever call me again and, and he's like yeah that that was deserved but it, <laughs> it, it, it's so hard to go through it's just like oh my god what, what are you doing oh see i was even cringing more at all the phone calls he was making in the well, mostly in the beginning to his ex. And <laughs> yeah, there's like that's like, yeah, oh, don't yeah. do that, dude. Oh my <laughs> yeah. god, that's horrible. 
But <laughs> yeah, I think the last time I watched that movie, it had dawned on me that the you could sum up that whole movie's dialogue with you know, baby money, money, baby, 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 money, <laughs> yeah. money, baby. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the only two words. No, yep. yeah, I, yep, awkward, awkward for sure. Yep, that's a good one. I have a couple more, but um, we can probably rattle these off like forever. But this one I thought was a, was slightly different in that I think the scene really works, and it's more of like a tension. Um, it's another like tension rising scene. But in the movie um, Goodfellas, the a funny guy scene. I don't know if you remember this or seen this. I, I'm I'm pretty sure you've seen Goodfellas, but the scene where um, Joe Pesci is kind of he's telling a joke in this. Uh, they're like out to eat at, at some restaurant and there's a you know a group of mafia guys sitting around each other and he's telling this funny story. And I think it's something about him like beating some guy up, you know, and so all the mafia guys are are laughing. And it's crazy because they're all laughing. But if you look, if you watch um who's who's the who's the actor, the main actor of that movie? Uh starts with an R. Ray Liotta. Yeah, Ray Liotta. Yeah, so Ray Liotta, I think, I can't tell if this is horrible acting or great acting because in that scene, his laugh is so fake and he, but he's so committed to it. But I think it works for the scene because that's how his character is feeling with Joe Pesci. Because at that point, Joe Pesci's character has already like um, been set up as like this crazy person that makes no fucking sense. But he gets done telling this joke and Ray Liotta's character is like, Oh yeah, yeah, that's funny. You're a funny guy. And then immediately Joe Pesci turns around from telling the joke to be like, What do you mean? What do you mean I'm funny? Like I'm here to amuse you? I'm am I a clown to you? And it's like, holy shit, what's happening right now? Like this guy's crazy. And like the the room like drops, like it gets completely silent. And, and it lasts like, you know, a good minute or two of this. And Ray Liotta's like, you know, there's like a long pause. And then Ray Liotta's like, get the fuck out of here and you know and joe pesci's like i almost had him i almost had him but then it the scene goes up again because the like waiter comes over and is like you got to settle your bill and it's like seven thousand dollars and joe pesci's like just put it on my tab and he's like you're embarrassing my friends and then he goes off on that guy so it's not like he's joking you know to ray leona like he's he's probably like puts that in his back pocket and is like oh I'm gonna get this Ray Liotta guy, right? Like, <laughs> and so it's it's like this awkward moment of tension building. But this guy is, you know, he most likely will probably murder you, right? So it, you know, it's, it's he's telling a joke, but at the same time, you gotta fucking watch yourself if you're Ray Liotta in this scene. It's it's pretty incredible sequence, I think. Yeah, getting caught uh, misreading the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wrong wrong reaction. The Ray the Ray Liotta laugh. That you mentioned is a huge meme on the internet for fake <laughs> right, laughing. Yeah, so, yeah, right. And he really commits to all his laughs in that movie. <laughs> but that, so that's a good point that you brought up the uh, misreading the room because I think that th this is um, vicarious um, embarrassment, right? Like it's pe people not understanding, you know, what's embarrassing or not, or one person thinks one thing's embarrassing and another person thinks something else is embarrassing. And this is where a lot of comedies are are made or even like just think if you're hanging out with a group of friends and you know that you do something that is embarrassing. But once you start to commit to that and everyone in the room understands that, you know, it is embarrassing and you're doing it for laughs, there's like a fine line between it being embarrassing or being like super hilarious. Right. And I think that's where the mm -hmm. cringe comedy comes in is like, you know, straddling that line of you know cringe or hilarious but once you once someone commits i think it can really work 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to make this my final, my final one. And to piggyback off of what I just said, but uh, the, in the movie uh, about a boy with Hugh Grant and Nicholas Holt, it's also an early 2000 movie, I think. Have you seen this? Uh, uh, yeah, I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, the whole movie is Nicholas Holt's character. He's, he's, a, he's a young kid, and um, his mother is like suicidal. But one of the things that makes his mother really happy is, sing- is him singing Killing Me Softly. So he befriends um, Hugh Grant's character, and at the end of the movie, um, Nicholas Holt's character decides to sing Killing Me Softly in front of his whole school because he thinks it's going to make his his mother happy and you know not not want to kill herself anymore and Hugh Grant realizes that you know he he's going to get killed by these kids kids are so fucking mean so then he's you know Nicholas Holt goes up on stage and starts singing it and then Hugh Grant shows up and sort of saves the day with you know with a guitar and so it you know it really sells the moment and it's straddling that line of like oh man it's cringeworthy when Nicholas Holt just starts singing it cuz the kids are starting to laugh but then with the guitar kicks in with Hugh Grant, it, you know, it really starts to sing or really starts to, uh, um, make it work. But then <laughs> Hugh Grant really starts to get into it. He's his character does. And like, he goes on like a solo guitar riff and then all everyone's like, what the fuck are you doing? You had it, but then you just took it overboard, you know? So it, <laughs> it gets every facet of, of the awkwardness happens in this one scene. And it's, it, it's really great. Did you ever see 500 days of summer? Oh yeah. Yeah. Got one of the best Star Wars references ever. Yes, right. we got Star Wars in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Boom. <laughs> that that's I can't think of like a specific scene out of that, but I mean the whole the whole concept of it can be kind of cringy. Yeah, oh okay, sorry. I no, I, lied. Go. I I had I had I said about a boy was my last one, but this this final one is uh this final final one is a scene that um it is sort of um, what in the category of what we're initially talking about of hard to watch because it's like physically grotesque, but it's I think it's unique in that they don't actually show it, and so it, it's the movie Scarface, and which I think is kind of a ridiculous movie, but this <laughs> it, the scene um, I, I don't know if you remember, but him uh, Al Pacino's character and it's either his brother or his cousin I can't fucking remember, but they are going in on some deal and they go into this apartment room and they get caught up in with, you know, these guys and these guys have a chainsaw and they go into the bathroom and they start cutting this other guy's arm off. And it, you know, it's terrifying because, you know, it could happen to them. And the camera sort of zeroes in on El Pacino and his face while the chainsaw is cutting the guy's arm off. But the look on Pacino's face is so horrifying that I feel like I'm watching the chainsaw actually go through the guy's arm, but you don't see it, but that's how my brain like sort of computes it. So that, that, that's, I thought that was kind of like a unique um, cringe moment or a hard to watch moment in that they don't actually show anything, but that's the person's reaction. Their response to what's going on, right. That you can't see that. Yeah. That's always a sign that I love that. Yeah. That's what I even say with any of these is that it can be done like the same thing can be done by different people but not have the same effect so there's definitely something to that yeah i think um steven spielberg has made an absolute career as a uh filmmaker with getting 
uh, people's response to, to things. I, I think that's what he does really well in all of his movies. Not he doesn't make a lot of movies that are hard to watch, but he he has made some. But he usually gets a reaction shot from from the um, from the actors or from the characters. That's really good. Really sells it. I just watched a movie recently and it had Reese Witherspoon in it. And there was like a scene where they did like the shot of her face. Like we're supposed to see that expression and what she's feeling. And I'm like, yeah, it's not there. I don't know. She's just like <laughs> hanging on her face. What am I? So she's not doing anything. So yeah, it doesn't, doesn't hit all the time. This is a still image of Reese Witherspoon. Right. Well, I, it's, it's a, a fine line. I think you really have to be skilled at, at capturing that and uh, delivering that to the screen. So, yeah. Is that, that's, that's it? Got it? Yeah, that, that's all the, all the ones I could think of for this one. So as soon as, soon as we're done with this episode, I'm going to think of a hundred of them. But that oh, was yeah, my, like, like all week, I'm trying to like think of the specific items and stuff. And it's mostly all I came up with. And But as soon as it's over, I'm like, damn it, I should have said this and that. To wrap up a little bit, that um, I was noticing something about some of the picks that I came through in that when I watched these movies, um, a lot of my picks I watched at a particular age. And I was thinking about how, um, I, I think I did mention it, but like, you know, watching things maybe a little bit before, you know, these mature um, scenes or, or movies a little bit before you should, or while you maybe haven't had a lot of exposure to them, can had a lot more effect on me than to movies like since then. So like, I think, you know, you sort of build up that tolerance to these things, but so like I think what you you were saying with like horror movies, you're sort of like you know it's fun to you, and those are made to be fun. But because you've seen a lot of you know those grotesque things, it makes it easier to handle some of some of the more hard to watch like physical abuse scenes. And so that's where I think some of the more awkward, uncomfortable scenes still get me because everyone can still relate to those um, now. And I think as you know, being older, it's still something you have to go with. Where. Um, yeah, it's just a little bit more relatable to me, I guess. So it's it's still hard to hard to watch those types of movies or scenes. Yeah, absolutely. Even when I'm watching like uh, shows, TV shows, or movies that are meant for younger high schoolers or anything, I can still relate and remember how that <laughs> yep. was and stuff. Yep. So I can still feel that for them. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Scarface, um, there there was they were talking about that they're redoing or doing a reboot of scarface hmm. right did you hear that I didn't hear, no i didn't even heard this yeah see again it might just be off the wall whatever but rumor mill was that they're working on a reboot or not reboot remake of scarface and the the message form or whatever i've seen that in they're all pitching a fit they're like why are they gonna mess with stuff and just leave it alone and all this stuff and in my mind i'm like scarface is a, re a remake the Scarface <laughs> You Love with Al Pacino is a fucking remake. Yep. So, <laughs> it is. And leading into the top of the episode where we're talking about Superman and, yeah, Henry Cavill and people are talking about, oh, well, no, we don't need a new Superman. He's the best Superman and all this. It's like there was a ton of other Supermen, though, before him. So it's like why like, people want to stop at this current one or like with when Ben Affleck came as Batman, everyone pitched a fit. And, um, and now we love Batman and they're pitching a fit about Robert Pattinson and it's always this kind of uh, back and forth. But I was going to say, I think unless we switch it up, next week's topic is going to be about reboots and remakes 
But since you brought up Scarface, that it just dawned on me, and so we'll be having a topic about that, and that'll be coming up. Yeah, just to be clear on that um, reboots, because I did mention how I I wanted I was I think I'm not ready for a new Superman yet, oh, and yeah. it's just because mm-hmm. I feel like uh, Cavell has has a couple more, you know? Oh yeah, he's but, definitely good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not that I'm opposed to a reboot; it's just that you know I I feel like we have a guy right now that we can that I'd like to see more of, but I'm just, just so I, I'm just separating myself from the, yes. <laughs> the, you know, we can't do another one. Like I know there's going to be more Superman movies. Right. Yeah. My reference was more for like the internet forums and stuff. Sure. So not you. Yeah, sure. We're, we, we know what we're talking about. <laughs> oh yeah. We're, we're experts. <laughs> we don't get upset about this make-believe bullshit ever. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think that's okay. it for this week. Yep. See ya. See ya.